This message was recorded on the campus of Watchta Hills College. For more information, visit our website, www.ohc.org. Father in heaven, that is the prayer of our hearts, that we would finish well. And we claim the promise that the work that you've started in each one of our lives, that you will be faithful to complete. And this weekend, as we commemorate, recognize your working in the lives of these graduates, may it be a time of reflection for us to look back, to see the evidences of your watch care in our lives, and to acknowledge that we have nothing to fear for the future, except we shall forget how you've led us in the past. Bless us now with your presence. Lord, I need you. I need your help to, to get these, these words and these ideas that are coming from lips of clay to be combined with Holy Spirit power to move our hearts for your glory and for your honor. Remove the distractions. Help us to focus on you and your word here this morning. This is sacred time. And we pray for the Holy Spirit that inspires would also be the spirit that instructs. But we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our passage of reflection this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, and I invite you to open your Bibles there. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the door of the posts and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. This is sensory imagery as Isaiah the prophet is given a scene of a vision of the temple in heaven. He sees the Shekinah glory, the seraphim hovering above the throne of God and the the utterances of these holy beings in the presence of the ineffable, eternal, illimitable God of the universe. I wish I could have seen what Isaiah saw. And human language is incapable of capturing the fullness of the glory that Isaiah beheld here in Isaiah chapter 6. And these beings are before the glory of God and they're covering 
their faces. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Theologians believe that this is an allusion to the Godhead. The three holies that are there can imply the holiness of the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, in the, the wake of this vision that Isaiah is witnessing in Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 5, we have the universal reaction of every person that has seen the holiness and the glory of God. And you see it there in verse 5. And so I said, woe is me, for I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's a context to this. Because if you go to Isaiah chapter 5 very quickly. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field. Till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. You can see the trajectory here. And then suddenly he sees God and he says, woe is me. Chapter 5, woe to that brother. What of what are you? And what are that sister? And what are that group? And then suddenly he sees God in his glory, and it's not woe to them. He says, Woe is me. Every person that's seen the glory of God has this universal reaction. Peter said to Jesus, Depart from me, because I'm a sinful man. I'd like to dwell on this for a few moments here because I, I don't want to pass over this point because we, we have this coping mechanism that is imprinted because of sin. Shame. We try to cover ourselves with fig leaves. And so there's a, this disconnect that takes place in human psychology because if you go into the inner recesses of humanity like Frederick Nietzsche did or attempted to do, and look at the depravity of human nature, you go insane. And he comes to the conclusion, looking at the debauchery and the motivations of the human heart, he said the only human decision that we really have is suicide. Because you look at the blackness within, it is depressing. And so we try to cope with it by looking at other people and saying, I'm not that bad. At least I'm not that like that brother. That brother's really got issues. We look around and try to build up ourselves with our own self-righteousness. Or we live in self-denial. There are individuals that have such a disconnect from reality of who they are and what everyone else sees. And this is a coping mechanism. There's that part of us, the blackness within That is difficult for us to grapple with. So we don't deal with it. I would venture to contend here this morning. That the only place 
that we can deal with the blackness of our human souls is at the cross. Because there, you can look at the ugliness of sin, and it is ugly. But it's safe to take off our masks. It's the safest place in the universe to be vulnerable and open because you see the blackness of what the depravity of sin has done to the Son of God at the same time you see salvation. And so it's in this context, the tension of beholding the glory of God, and it's in that frame that he suddenly recognized who he really is, and yet it's the safest place to be vulnerable. We try to to deal with this by putting up walls to not let people in, to, to build these fortifications around ourselves because we don't want to open up because someone is going to exploit us. And people have. And yet before God, we can be vulnerable. We can acknowledge our sinfulness. And here, in the wake of witnessing the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God, Isaiah says, I'm a sinner. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. It doesn't end there. Verse 6. Then when the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar, And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. He's experienced what theologians call justification. Forgiveness. Isaiah has just experienced the gospel. Look at the sequence. He sees God. He experiences his own need. And then afterwards, the angel comes down and says, look, this has touched your lips. You're forgiven. You're justified. And the beauty of justification is we can stand before God as if we have never sinned. Amen. That the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. The objective gospel, the reality that it's an alien righteousness outside of yourself and that is given to you without cost, without merit. And Isaiah is justified. And then, in verse 8, there's a conversation in the Godhead. In the community of the Godhead, and we know it's within the Godhead because there's the plurality that emerges here in the language. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? It's a conversation in the Godhead. A communion. So Isaiah has just been justified. He's saved. He's experienced the beauty of the gospel. And he hears a conversation in the Godhead among the community of the Trinity 
which is the most beautiful community and the quintessential of what we can be as a community of faith. Mutual submission. And in the inner sanctum of the Godhead, there is a conversation that takes place. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I'll go. I'll go. Look at the progression. Sees God. Experiences the gospel. And spontaneously he says, I'll go. Steps of Christ says, page 78, no sooner does one come to Christ than there is born in his heart a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. You don't have to get a crowbar out, open people's mouths, please talk about Jesus. You don't have to beg, you don't have to guilt. I'll go. When I arrived on this campus, 1994, for those of you that are visitors, I found the secret of the fountain of youth. I didn't start here when I was five, don't worry. I was an unconverted young soul that needed Jesus. Praise God for the Clarks and their sacrifice here. I arrived on this campus. Lord gave me a chance, and I took it. The Lord knew I needed help. Long story short, I went canvassing. I was canvassing unconverted. By the way, you can sell books unconverted. Did you know that? I sold a lot of books unconverted. High sales don't equal spirituality. Lord was merciful. End of my first program, summer, Lord said, David, you got to make a decision. So I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and there was my journey. And I remember in the wake of that, I was, I was calling up old friends. I remember I was at my parents' home, and, and I took one of my friends outside, and I just I said, Brother, I met Jesus. And I said, I want you to meet him too. I want, I want you to experience what I've just experienced. I, I didn't have to go to a class. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not downplaying training, but, but it was spontaneous. I just approached people and I said, look, I was empty. I was a wreck and Jesus healed me. And this brother's just looking at me with conviction and I said, I, I said give him a chance. I've been in the church all my life and never experienced conversion. Give God a chance. I worked in Los Angeles as a Bible worker. South Central LA, some of you have heard the story. 20 Bible workers there on Florence and Figueroa. No mail out. Just going door to door. That summer changed my life. I was there on the streets of L.A. 
walking five miles a day, knocking on doors, asking for prayer requests, pleading for these people to accept Christ. And, and I saw people from the door to the series to baptism at the end of 11 weeks. I was, I was the first. Do you want a prayer request? Took them to the meetings, gave them a ride, studied with them. And, and I remember by the side of the baptistry, as I saw the soul that, that the Lord had privileged me and given me the opportunity to be a part of this wonderful work of, of just seeing this person's life transformed in, in, the, in the heart of depravity in Los Angeles, going down into the waters and just weeping at the side of that baptistry for joy. And I said, I want to do this the rest of my life. Changed me. My junior year in college. I pastored a church in East Lansing. Across the street. From Michigan State University. 40,000 students. Descended on that campus every year. 4,000 international students. Every year. 2,000 from China. I would get up on Sabbath morning and say the mission of this church is to reach the mission field that comes to us every single year. The mission field comes to us. That is why we're here. And the Lord puts his money where his mouth is. And I challenge that congregation to engage in radical campus ministries. Educated our young people to be Waldensians at the heart of secularism and debauchery and every type of immorality that was taking place two blocks from our church. I told the story of a young lady by the new name of Lu Yang who was searching for truth, came to this country as an atheist, enrolled in Michigan State University. She started coming to our church because a young man had the audacity to ask her if she wanted Bible study. She said yes. We gave her a key to our church, let her study in our basement. She could come and go as she wanted. We're your family, we told her. She was coming to church on a regular basis, hearing messages. And finally, my associate pastor, Daniel Jean-Francois, came to me, who's a brilliant. The Lord has blessed him with the gift of getting decisions. I've learned so much from him. And he took a look at me. I was was eating my, my food at potluck. And he took a look at me, and I could tell by his eyes, this meant business. He said, he said David, you need to come right, up, right now. So I stopped. I, I walked into his office, and I sat down. There was Lou sitting there. There were tears in her eyes. I sat down. And I recognized that she was in the valley of decision. This atheist had met the Lord Jesus. And I looked at her and I said, Lou, do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now? And she said, yes. And we knelt down and did the sinner's prayer. Two weeks later, we were baptizing her into the Seventh-day Adventist church. She came to this country as an atheist, left as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and is working in China today. In the hallway, you'll see a map That's on the wall. People have asked, why is that there? 
You see, Dr. and Mrs. Clark, when they came here to do Dark County evangelism, and look, they could have retired very comfortably. They could have worked 40 miles outside of Loma Linda, established a great practice, but they wanted to do Dark County evangelism, came here to Clark County, Amity, Arkansas, to do a work and raise up a church. Praise God. And part of the vision that they had was, was that this school would raise missionaries. That's why that map is out there. Not to just go out there and have a career and, and have your 2.5 children. I know that's just the statistic, but you know what I'm talking about? Live in the suburbs, drive your SUV, have a camper. Nothing wrong with that. I have a little camper. But you know what I'm talking about? Just live the American dream, get your 401k, and die. That's not the vision of Adventist education. Ellen White says it's too narrow. It needs to be broader than that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things in and of themselves, but it needs to be broader. It needs to take into consideration this life and the life to come. The total possible period of existence that that human potential can live for a purpose. Look, animals exist for subsistence, for comfort. But human beings must live for a higher purpose, for a higher calling. And the book Education says, if you're wondering what your life call should be, and young people are wondering about this all the time, what am I supposed to do with my life? What is my purpose? I encourage you to read the book Education, the chapter, The Life Work. And just in case you've forgotten, those that are in my philosophy of Adventist education class, I know it's been a long time, and the memory grows weak, so I'll read it to you here again. Repetition deepens impression. Success in any line demands a definite aim. He would achieve true success in life must keep steadily in view the aim worthy of this endeavor. Such an aim is set before the youth of today. And listen to this, the heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the most noblest that can appeal to any human being. It opens a field of effort to everyone whose heart Christ has touched. That's your life work. That's your mission. Now, you may have a component within that broad frame, but your purpose is not to live for yourselves. It's to live for God. To take the gospel to the world before Jesus comes. And look, I tell our young people all the time, look, I'm Gen X. My generation failed. We failed. We should not be here right now if my generation had got our act together. But we got comfortable. And we thought. That the American dream could be combined with Christianity. And they're not synonymous. The 1040 window is a rectangular area of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude. Take a look at it on the map when, you, when you're exiting this auditorium. This area is often called the resistant belt, belt 
and includes the majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. 95% of the people living in the 1040 window are unevangelized. Many have never heard the gospel message even once. Not once. Two-thirds of the world's population, more than 3.2 billion people, live in the 1040 window. Now, just to give you an idea of this, if you sat down, I don't recommend you do this. It's a waste of your time. And let's say you wanted to count to one billion, and you averaged one number a second. It would take you 95 years to do that. 95 years. A billion minutes ago, and Jesus was on this earth. And yet, 3.2 billion people live in that rectangular section of the 1040 window. And yet, Adventists, let me just speak plainly. Our vision is, oh, I can have my cake and eat it too. I'm going to go to church on Sabbath, put in a little bit of offering, and then go back to my Sunday Super Bowl and Monday night football and live like a secular person the rest of the week. And yet on Sabbath, I'm going to be a good Christian, compartmentalizing our lives and not living totally for God. That's the vision that has infiltrated our community of faith. And that's why places like this exist. To raise a generation that will say, it stops here. And I'm going to lay it all on the altar. Henry Martin was a Cambridge scholar. He was a genius. He had warts covering his face. He was hideous to look at. Stories and accounts would tell of how he would watch cricket games from, from a distance because of the, the, just the self-consciousness that he had of, of, of the way that his face looked. Henry Martin fell in love with a young lady by the name of Lydia. And she loved Henry because of the mind that he had and the intellect. One day, Henry was sitting in church, and he heard a missionary tell of the need in India and the great work and potential that was there and that resonated within his heart. And so excitedly, he went to Lydia and said, Let's go. Let's go. Let's get married. And let's go to India. She looked at him and said, Henry, this is the last place on earth I want to go. It's India. He said, how can you say that? So he walked away from her. Is it going to be Lydia or India? Lydia or India? And finally he recognized it wasn't Lydia or India it was India, it was Lydia or God. So he broke off that relationship. 
went to India, and later to Persia. He was dragged across the desert in chains. And he died at the age of 31. 31. And many people would say, what a waste of a life. But do you, do you know what he left the world before he died? The translation of the New Testament in three languages, Arabic, Hindustani, and Persian. What a legacy to live for God. Live your life for God. He made you. This is our purpose. This is our destiny. This is why we are here. This is why we've been put on this planet Earth. And don't let anyone fool you. Education is evangelism. Education is redemption. That's what gets me up every morning. Romans chapter 10, our scripture reading, very quickly here. Romans chapter 10, Paul synthesizes the gospel. Let's pick it up in Romans chapter 10 and verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth that is in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And look in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel is profound. It could be elaborated on for the ceaseless ages of eternity. We'll be meditating on the gospel and the cross. But here, Paul just synthesizes in a few words the beauty of the gospel. And the beauty of the gospel is that essentially it is simple. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, the Bible says you will be saved. Praise God. And then he goes on, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on him. In verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah. Praise his name. Universal availability of the gospel. You call on him, you believe in your heart, justified. Now, if you're like a good Adventist today, you're like, oh, praise God, let's go eat some pasta for lunch now. We can celebrate that, but Paul doesn't end there. After he's just built up the beauty of the gospel, the availability of the gospel, the universal just accessibility of the gospel to all of humanity, and then we're like, oh, praise God, he's just set us up. Because you can't go eat potluck right now. He's like, hold on. That's not the end. And he's like, I'm going to make it a little bit uncomfortable. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? In other words, as beautiful as the gospel is, in its sublime nature, how universally accepted 
accessible it is to all of humanity and the beauty of it that anyone who calls on him shall be saved. That's a beautiful message. And Paul says, look, a message that is not sent is as good as no message at all. It's dead. And he's basically saying, that's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. Ellen White says, how can we live with our selfish love of ease? And I'm preaching to myself. I like comfort. I was in the master's program at Andrews University. We could sign up for a cubicle on the third floor. So I signed up for one and I was studying there. <laughs> Comprehensive examinations. Oh, Lord have mercy. Up there. And then the guy next to me would just, <clears throat> you know, I'm an introvert. I'm like, look, there's a reason why I went up there to the third floor. Don't bother me. And this brother had a, had, you know, booked a cubicle right next to me. He's like, David. And I'm like, oh. yeah, man. It's John Baxter. <laughs> he was doing his master's in missiology, and I was doing mine in systematic theology. And so we'd have this friendly banter that went back and forth. And I said, look, you know theology precedes missions, right? And he said, that's heresy. He said, missions, missions is where it's at. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, message precedes mission. Yeah. And so we go, we'd have this friendly back and forth, and, and we developed a friendship over the years. And he would tell the story of how he went to India, brought his children there, and, he, and, and, and just the, the experiences that he had. He tells the story of how he went to the hospital to, to visit this individual that was struggling with, with hepatitis. And so he goes in there, and of course, the, you know, the, the facilities, I shouldn't say of course, the facilities at the time were not, were not the best. And so there were multiple people in the place that this person was, was struggling with hepatitis. And so John Baxter goes there to minister to that individual. And, and there's, there's a group of people that are around another person, just a bed over. And there's a boy lying there. And the, the group of people around him are just distraught, is an understatement, weeping. And John Baxter had been prevalent in the community, and so they knew him, and they said, look, um, can, can you come over and pray for this boy that he'd be healed? And so John comes over, and he, and he says, he doesn't look good. So he reaches and checks his pulse. No pulse. The boy's dead. No breathing. He's dead. And, and John's like, how long has he been like this? 12 hours. And they look at John and say, like, look, can you pray for him? And so John's been preaching about the God of the Bible, how he can do anything. And so John's like there and he's just like, he said, okay. And so he prays for this dead boy. 
a simple prayer. And then after he prays, he opens his eyes, nothing happens. So he's like, this is a little bit awkward. So he says, uh, the guy needs some medicine at the pharmacy. Uh, I'll see you guys later. So he leaves, goes down the stairs, goes outside, goes to the pharmacy, gets the medicine for the guy that has hepatitis, goes back in, and he goes inside, and, and the lady, and there's, there's commotion. This is a true story. Commotion, pandemonium. And the lady, the mother of that boy, comes and, and bows before John Baxter. He said, no, 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 please don't. And, and grabs his, his feet, and he looks, and that boy is alive. He's alive. True story. One person said, never pity missionaries. Envy them. They are where the real action is. Where life and death, sin and grace, heaven and hell converge. And I pray that we have more Jason Sligers and Midori Sligers that, that come from this institution to the frontier, to reach the unreached. There's a missionary here as well, but I pray that that map in the hallway is filled up with individuals that respond to God's call. You're either a missionary or you're a mission field. As we close this morning, I want to read to you a, a story. I read it to the students in my class, Philosophy of Amnesty Education. You hear it again. It's narrated by a Christian apologist. And it's the story of, of David Livingston. And every time I've heard this story, it's just inspired me. And it's my prayer that you will be inspired as well. David Livingston was born in Blantyre, Scotland in 1813. He was born into a home where his father used to put him on his knees and read to him stories of the great missionary exploits, particularly that of Carl Gutzlab, the Dutch missionary, who doubled up as a medical missionary too. Young David used to look into his father's eyes and say, you know, Daddy, one day I want to be a man like that. I want to be a missionary. I want to be a doctor. I want to serve God. David Livingston one day got on his knees and said this prayer, Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. Sever any tie but the tie that binds me to your service and your heart. And the words of God came to him. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of his age. He packed his bags, went off to Africa. And when he took one glimpse of Africa in the distance, he penned in his journal these words, The haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun have burned within my heart. He married a woman of the famous Moffat family. Mary was her name. Her father was a great missionary, and together they went to Africa. 
But David Livingston's life was that of an explorer, and he would move from place to place, and his only goal was Jesus in the hearts and lives of men and women, thousands of them. Finally, his wife and young family could not keep up with him anymore. Some of his children were dying out of sickness and disease, and so he said to his wife, Mary, why don't you go home with them? I will see you shortly and spend some time with you. It's too dangerous for us to go on. So he sent his dear wife, Mary, back home, and letters would take months to exchange, but some of the fondest letters of love and romance were sent between David and Mary. And you know when he saw her the next time? Not five weeks, not five months, five years later. I'm not condoning the man, nor condemning what he did. I'm just telling you what happened. Five years later, when he set his eyes upon his wife, she could not recognize him. Because at one stage, in his jungle travels, going to preach, he had walked into the branch of a tree that had completely blinded him in one eye and marred the other. His face had been burned under the African sun to a crisp of leather, and his skin, which had not been pigmented for it, had been roasted to the point that his body could not take it any longer. His face marred and scarred, his eye blinded. At one time, he had been attacked by a lion that had torn one of his shoulders apart. He had miraculously escaped. Now she saw her husband hobbling in with a marred face and disfigured countenance. Hours before, they had buried his father. David wept because he longed to tell his dad firsthand of the stories his father had only told him thirdhand. Biographical sketches tell us when David Livingston walked into the universities of the British Isles, students and faculty would rise to a standing ovation because they knew they were standing in the presence of a giant of a man. Finally, he went back to his wife one day and said, Mary, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun are still burning within my heart. We need to go back. She decided that he should go. But she had to be with the children. She said, when they're all old enough, I will join you again, David. And he set off on his lonely journey to preach to the African people who were so much within his heart. Finally, after a long time, Mary joined him. And the day she set foot on African soil, she contracted a disease they had so dreaded she would contract. The day she set foot on Africa, she got that disease. And a few days later, he was burying her. Lowered into the soil of the African earth there, an eyewitness said David Livingston knelt beside the grave, weeping his heart out. And they overheard him saying, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I again consecrate my life to thee. I shall place no value on anything I possess or anything I may do in relation to thy kingdom and thy service. And through all of it, the words of God came to my heart. He said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He picked up his belongings, walked back to this hometown village of Ujiji, and when he arrived, he went to his little home there. He found that someone had played a cruel joke on him and stolen his medication that he so needed because his body was racked with pain, untold pain. He walked in constant agony, and they said in one of the few points in his life, he prayed for himself, and he got on his knees and said, God, you promised you'd always be with me. I need that medication if I'm to continue preaching the gospel. As he prayed, he heard steps, and as the story goes, he saw a pair of feet planted in front of him, and his countenance lifted for the first time in a long while. He was looking into the face of a white man who didn't live in Africa, and he said, Who are you, sir? And the man said, and the man replied, David Livingston, I presume. Those famous words. He said, Yes, sir. Mr. Livingston, I'm a press reporter. I've been consigned to do a story on your life, 
And I want you to know two things about me. Number one, I'm the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth. Please don't try to convert me. Number two, someone has sent some medication for you. David said, please give me that medication. So Mr. Henry N. Stanley started to travel with David Livingston. Four months later, the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth knelt down on African soil and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. One of the biggest and best biographies you ever read on David Livingston are the two volumes, Livingston of Africa. Henry M. Stanley said, the power of that Christ life was awesome, and I had to buckle in. I could not hold out any longer. Finally, Livingston's body began to shrivel with high temperatures and pain. They used to carry him around from village to village on a stretcher, one day preaching from a stretcher, literally trembling. He looked at two of his national brothers and said, please take me back home. I'm very, very ill. I'm very tired. I need some sleep. They brought him to his home and were about to spill him on his bed when he said, no, please help me on my knees. Livingston buckled down on his knees by the side of his bed and clasped his hands and started to pray. His prayers were so profound. His sanctuary was so unique that his African brothers felt it was blasphemy to stay in a single union communion with God, and they stepped out of his little room. Then someone came running and said, I need to see Dr. Livingston for a moment. They said, shh, quiet, please. He's praying. Five minutes went by. They looked in. He was still on his knees. Several minutes went by. They looked in. He was still on his knees. After a projected period of time, they looked in. He was still on his knees. One of them felt that the man was too tired to continue to pray. He needed to get some sleep. He walked over to him, and one of them shook him by the shoulder and inquired, Wana, Wana. <sighs> Livingston fell over. He was dead. He died exactly the way he had lived, in the presence of his Lord. He didn't run from that voice. He didn't wave a lamp that had no light in it. He didn't sell his soul for some earthly pleasure. But the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages had burned within his heart so that he could say, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate myself to Thee. Let us kneel for prayer. O oh, Father in heaven, forgive us. Forgive me. For letting my dreams and aspirations of the future be for my own comfort. To thinking that I could have the world and have you at the same time.
And Lord, I pray that I, that we would experience what Isaiah did. The gospel. And from that experience, as we hear the call, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? As that clarion call echoes that all of us, from that standpoint of the experience of the grace and the mercies of God that we experience every single day, would rise out of our selfishness and our self-centeredness and our love of the pleasures of this world to say, Lord, here am I. Send me. That is the cry of our hearts this morning. Forgive us. Forgive me. Help us to recognize that when you said, go ye, it meant, go me. Lord, let there not be another generation. Another 10, 15, 20, 40 years where we're preaching the same sermons and citing the same statistics. The same clarion calls to missions because generation after generation has sold their souls on the altar of, of sinful pleasures. Thinking that that would accommodate the gospel commission. Help us to lay ourselves on the altar. Recognizing that he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Bless us to that end today. We thank you that you say, come to me, and then you say, go for me. We thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness, that you're patient with us. We pray for this institution that you've called for such a time as this, that you would raise up David Livingston's and Henry M. Stanley's, Henry Martin's, that would say, Lord Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I consecrate myself to Thee. Bless and keep us to that end, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.